from a lot of places, but isn't this just one ethnicity of people gathering from a bunch of different places? But actually, no. Later on in the text, I think in verse 11, actually, it mentions that, that this isn't just diverse geographically. This is diverse racially. There are, there are all sorts of different races here. Jews, which is a race. Proselytes, meaning people who are not ethnically Jewish. Cretans, Arabians. Literally, different, different colors of people in a crowd. So, so I want you to see how in many ways um, this crowd looks better than we look. Right, uh, They have hit two things which many people aspire to. Uh, they, have, they, have, they have arrived at a level of devotion that many of us would aspire to. Have you ever, I don't know how many of you have ever read the Puritans, and I don't know how many of you have ever read stories about their coming to faith in Jesus. But you read the story of a guy like David Brainerd or someone coming to faith in Jesus, and you come to the sobering reality that these dudes were godlier before they're Christians than I am after, right? Like, like, like sometimes, sometimes you can see somebody and you just say, well, you're just a better human being than I am. I mean, that's just clear. These are people who really are doing a great deal in what they believe to be their service to God. They are legitimately devoted. There's nothing, you know, necessarily fake about this. This is costly. And there's a level of diversity happening here to which American churches continue to aspire and struggle to achieve. I mean, this is, this is what's happening here checks off so many of the aspirational boxes of our culture, right? Like, these are things that are, we're aiming for, that we want, and this crowd has it. This is, this is a, a good-looking crowd in all of the right ways to measure that. Well, most of the right ways to measure that. But, point three, they were deceived and they were distracted. They were deceived and they were distracted. Now, I don't, I thought about this a lot. I don't know how different those two words really are. You know, I don't, I don't know how different those two words are. I kind of think that distracted is just sometimes a nicer way to say deceived. I saw that, that Daryl brought Dunkin' Donuts this morning, right? Those are Dunkin' Donuts? Those? Yeah. Yes. They were Dunkin' Donuts. And I, and I saw that and I thought, you know, like that would be a perfect opportunity. Like if, if someone was about to grab the last donut and I had one of my children fall in front of that person. And so he turns, how can I help you? You know, and I take the donut and run like he's been distracted, but he's also been deceived. Right. So I don't think there's a huge difference between those two words, uh, generally speaking. But I'll tell you like this, and this is important. There is no difference between those two words when it comes to loving Jesus. These two words are the same thing when it comes to loving Jesus. If something has distracted you from seeing Jesus as central, you have been deceived. If something's distracting you from trusting him, from walking with him, from enjoying him, you are being deceived. Distracted and deceived are the same thing when it comes to taking your eye off of Jesus. It's just distracted sounds a lot better. But it's not any better. And it's not any different. It's the same deal. So you've got these people who are devoted, and you've got these people who are diverse, but they are distracted and they are deceived. 
And what I see as I think through these things is that good things often have the most power to distract us from Jesus. And they do that by amplifying their value in our hearts. They deceive us. Good things deceive us into believing they're gods, right? They become idols. They become things we we think of as central, as necessary. Good things are perhaps most powerful in their ability to distract slash deceive us from Jesus. And I'm talking about two things right now, devotion and diversity. But I think if you wanted to just kind of abstract those out a little bit, you could see that they almost are two columns of, of thinking. And there are all sorts of things that fall below that. Like, honestly, friends, some of you are distracted by this absence of devotion in one area of your life, an absence of discipline, an absence of order. And you have come to believe, at least in your affections, at least in the way your heart goes, where your heart goes in neutral, you've come to believe that if that area of your life, that lacking of devotion, that lacking of discipline, that lacking of of you being better, you've come to believe that if that would just fall in line, you'd be saved. You'd be okay. You would have been redeemed. And for others of us in this room this morning, under this heading of diversity, we just what we're really talking about is relational harmony, right? We're just talking about various degrees of relational harmony. And there are others of us in this room that are thinking... If this relationship were just right, if so-and-so and so-and-so would just get along, if somebody would stop hurting me and start loving me, then I would be saved. And in both cases, believing that if somehow we could step up to be more than we are, or if our relationships could be better than they are, in both cases, as those things begin to take center stage of our hearts, we are deceived. We are deceived into taking our eyes off the centerpiece of our faith. Diversity as, it's, as a stand-in for relational harmony, for people loving each other and getting along, which is really all we're talking about when we talk about diversity. Diversity as a stand-in for relational harmony is a seductive, false savior. Because when it's not right, it hurts so much that we think that if it got right, everything would be okay. And it just doesn't work that way. Friends, devotion, I think devotion for most of us is the most deceptive attribute or quality, false God, that many of us are tempted to worship routinely but here's the thing, devotion, my devotion, isn't the centerpiece of my faith. Jesus is. How often are your eyes on yourself and your lack of devotion? And how often are your eyes on Jesus in his perfect devotion? You know, I was praying through this message this morning and um, I was I was actually in the shower, sorry, but I was praying through this message, and uh, and I just thought, you know, I want to be repentant for my sin. 
I want to hate my sin. But if the centerpiece of my faith is concern over my sin, I'm really just adoring the work of the devil. Instead of adoring the work of Jesus. And so you have this crowd that looks so great. They really have arrived. They're better than you. They're better than me. But they're deceived. They're distracted by things that seem really good and indeed are good, by the way. God has a plan for relational harmony. God has a plan to make us love him. But oh, how easily it become how easy it becomes for us to make our lack of diversity, our lack of social justice, our, our lack of relational harmony, how easy it is to allow those things to become God's. And how easy it is to reinterpret the value of a day based on whether or not you did X, Y, and Z for God. To reinterpret the value of the day based on your level of devotion instead of seeing Jesus as the centerpiece of your faith. I, I want to be I want to speak more into this devotion thing because I want I want something to be ring true to you and be clear. You are called to die to self, but you cannot die for yourself. You are not your own savior, and no matter how much you die to your sin, you will not save yourself. That is the work of Jesus Christ. The centerpiece of this text and the very central truth that these folks were distracted from. You are called to press into social and relational harmony, but that only happens on the other side of the cross. The only way it really works is on the other side of the cross. The truth is, I'm playing up this diversity piece a bit. These folks did not get along. They could get along for about two months out of the year. And that was the best they could do. And great judgment would fall upon their nation. And it would all happen in Jerusalem. Because these people were constantly fighting with one another. This is fake diversity. This is fake harmony. And it's always fake harmony. Apart from the cross. So, I mean, they were devoted. They were diverse. Better than us, I think. Uh, but they were definitely distracted and they were deceived and 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 here's the other thing here's the fourth point they were damned they were damned um i love invoking rhetorical whiplash i love using words that oprah would use like diversity and then use the word that she would never use like damned you know if if honestly i think we're talking in some ways about two cultures uh I think, I think that we have experienced this. It's almost a red state, blue state thing. It's kind of in that same line. We're experiencing two different cultures when we talk about these two things. There is a sense in which the religious community believes that devotion will save them. And there is a sense in which the secular humanist uh, worldview believes that diversity will save them. And they're both just false gospels. So, uh, so the, the, you're, both, you're, you're, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. This is the problem with being without Christ. You don't see how the God you think will save you is actually a result of salvation through Christ. 
That's the problem of being without Christ is you don't realize that all the things you think will save you are simply symptoms of salvation achieved in Christ. So these folks were damned. In verse 21, uh, Peter's quitting Joel and he talks about being saved. He says, uh, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. In verse 40, uh, uh, Peter's talking to them again and he says, save yourselves, save yourselves from this, this crooked generation, this wicked and crooked generation. And he doesn't mean save yourself like do stuff. He means believe in Jesus, which the, the verse spells out. These guys, these devoted, diverse people who are checking off so many boxes need to be saved because they are presently damned. Now, I think that's an important part of damnation that we don't often discuss. So I want to talk about that damnation as a present reality. Uh, We tend to think of damnation as something that happens in the future or something that will happen in the future, something that may happen in the future. But the truth is, is that damnation, this idea of being cut off and suffering loss from God, damnation is a present reality. If you are not in Christ, if Christ isn't the centerpiece of your efforts to be saved, um, then you are currently living in a state of damnation. Uh, to say this in an Oprah way, uh, damnation isn't just the destination, it's the journey. It isn't just an eternal state of life. It's, it's not just an eternal state, it's a way of life. Uh, in John 3, Jesus talks to Nicodemus. Who's Nicodemus? He's one of the most devoted men in Israel. He is exceedingly devoted a good man in all of the boxes that we would check off as good. Again, better than you, better than me. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, and he says in John 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Verse 18, He that believes on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not, sorry, King James uh, moment there. He that believeth not is condemned already. Condemned already. The difference between Jesus and not Jesus is whether you are currently, presently living in a state of damnation or not. You can be as devoted as the folks we see here. You could travel thousands of miles to do your religious duty. You can be as diverse as we see here. You can check all the boxes, all the right boxes, by the way, of social justice, and you can still be damned. And the difference between whether or not you're damned is whether or not you believeth, King James moment, on the Son of God, whether you believe in Jesus, whether Jesus is the centerpiece of your faith. He that believes on him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Present state. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Verse 19. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world. Jesus has come into the world. This is exactly what Peter outlines. We'll see this next week. This is exactly what Peter outlines. He says that Jesus has come into the world, and you saw him. The light has come into the world. But men love darkness more than light because their deeds were evil. So these devoted people are not devoted enough. And these diverse people are 
have, have excluded the one person from their party that they needed to include. Jesus. Right? Diversity that excludes Jesus is a joke. Diversity doesn't make Jesus the head of the party is a joke. So these people are damned in a present state. First uh, Corinthians, we have, we have a verse for that. I think we could put it up on the screen. First Corinthians says that the natural man perceives not, doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. What does this mean? It means that until Jesus does a work in our hearts, we can look square in the face of Jesus and not see anything special. But we can look square in the face of ourselves and not see anything especially sinful. We can't discern the truth about who Jesus is or about who we are unless God does a work in our life. Romans 10, 1 through 3. Uh, I used to have this memorized. I don't think I do anymore. Paul's talking about his fellow Jews. And he says, brother, my heart's desire and prayer for them uh, is that they would be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God. Leave this up here for a minute. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Friends, when we put devotion or or relational harmony as the centerpiece of our faith, we are not submitting to the righteousness of God in Jesus, and we're trying to establish our own. That's what these folks were doing. They were living in a present state of hard-heartedness, apart from Christ, trying to establish their own righteousness through their own devotion and through their own means of social improvement. And that because of that, they were damned. And they didn't see it. Now, this is just really an introduction into a whole other conversation that I want to begin right now and carry on into next week. Because the second thing is not only is damnation a, uh, a present reality, but damnation is a personal responsibility. Damnation is a personal responsibility. The inability to see God right in front of their faces in Jesus led to one catastrophic, truly damnable moment in their lives. Look at Acts 2, uh, verse 22. Peter says to these guys, this crowd, this crowd of devoted, diverse people, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the world. He performed mighty works and wonders and signs that are self-attesting. Self-attesting meaning that you ain't going to be able to deny that this guy was special. You saw it with your own eyes. Look at the authority with which Peter speaks. You saw him. You knew he was different. You knew he was from God and you killed him. You crucified him. He says it again in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. Now here we've reached the eternally significant moment 
that shows up in our relationships, in how we talk to one another, in how we listen. We have reached an eternally significant fork in the road. Listen very closely. There are thousands of people in the crowd. And every single individual is faced with a choice. They can either say, not true, Peter. Not true. I didn't kill anybody. I didn't crucify anybody. That was the Romans. That was the high priests. That was Judas. That was Pilate. Or they can say, you're right. I killed Jesus. What must I do? That's a fork in the road. Think about that. If they want to parse words, if they want to remain, and how can they not help but remain in their legalistic trajectory, they will simply say, and they would be right, by the way, they could simply say, I didn't do that. I didn't kill Jesus. That wasn't me. They can literally say that and be factually correct. Or this miracle of insight takes place. And at those words, with no explanation, with no convincing, they are struck to their heart. And they say, what must I do? What an incredible difference those two outcomes bring in our lives. And friends, if we get this one right, then we're able to hear the truth behind the criticism, the truth behind the confrontation of others. We're able to hear and part and listen between the words to get the heart of it and not be a nitpicker and the wrong kind of literalist. If we get this right, it changes the whole way we listen to everything. But if we get it wrong, we continue to be what Proverbs says is a fool who is always right in his own eyes and always finds a rhetorical way of finding the high ground so he doesn't have to be wrong. So if they revolt against this assertion, they will continue to be damned. If they revolt against Peter's generalization, theologicalization that they killed Jesus. If they say that's not true, I didn't do that. I've been in Jerusalem, minding my own business, obeying God. It was not me who killed Jesus. If they revolt against Peter's assertion, they will remain in their state of damnation. No matter how devoted to religion they become or continue to be, no matter how socially enlightened if they revolt against this assertion that they have personal ownership over the death of Jesus, if they revolt against this idea that they are directly responsible personally for the death of Jesus, if they revolt against that, they will stay damned. But if they allow that truth to cut to the heart, then they will be saved. And we see, miraculously, in verse 37, that a number of these buttoned up, put together,
people. I don't ask for further explanation. Something happens. And somehow, though they themselves were not personally holding the hammer that crucified Jesus, they own it. Not because of great persuasion from Peter. No persuasion is offered. He simply says, you killed Jesus. And there's a chunk of people, the chosen in this crowd who say, you're right. What must I do? Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? I've offended a lot of people in my life. I'm kind of a professional offender or a serial offender. Sounds bad. And uh, um, usually when I offend people, they don't say, well, tell me what else you want me to do. What is happening in these men's hearts? That this capital offense has been laid in their laps and they let it sit there. And they say, you who just told me I did the worst thing ever, what do I need to do now? That's what they do. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation, this crooked, devoted, diverse generation. Save yourselves. So those who received his word were baptized. And there was added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, I've got a million questions, and I'm not even going to try to answer them. I'm just going to give you the questions. How, I'll, I'll try to answer this one next week. How did these dullards suddenly possess the spiritual sophistication necessary to see that even though they did not actually crucify Jesus and may not have even been directly responsible in any literal way, how did these nincompoops suddenly see and accept that they indeed were responsible, personally responsible, individually responsible for the crucifixion of the Holy One. How did they, here's, here's the, the basic question in, in a shorter version. How did they suddenly stop being legalists who parsed words and became people who opened up their hearts to accept this profound blame? What happened next week? Come back. <laughs> next question. In what way were they actually responsible? Peter is not rhetorically using some sort of language that everyone gets buys into in a, in a frenzied way. I want to I know. I want to answer. What way were they actually responsible? If they weren't the ones who literally crucified Jesus, in what ways were they actually responsible? And the third question is, is this something... I can say to you or that you could say to me with the same authority that Peter uses. 
Can I say to you and you say to me, you killed Jesus? Again, at some point in writing this message, I tried to answer those questions in this message and realized that Peter does not do that. That there are certain things the Spirit does that I shouldn't try to do. At least not all at once. The answers to those questions exist. But they really do exist for those who have already seen the truth behind the assertion. That truth being revealed to them spiritually. I just want to say this. Is the statement, you crucified Jesus. Can I, can I point my finger at you this morning and say, you crucified Jesus. Is that statement true? Are you as responsible for that, for the death of Jesus Christ, as these men were? I'm going to let John Stott, a great theologian, who's now even better because he's dead. He's with Jesus, so he's a really good theologian now. I'm going to let John Stott answer this question for you, for us. He says, were you there when they crucified my Lord? The old spiritual asks. And we must answer, yes, we were there. Not as spectators only, but as participants. Guilty participants, plotting, scheming, betraying, denying, and handing him over to be crucified. We may try to wash our hands of responsibility like Pilate, but our attempt would be futile. Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading us to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us, leading us to repentance. Only a man or woman who is prepared to share in his to to own his share in the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace. Only the man or woman who is prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace. Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we must begin to see the cross as something done by us. So the short answer that I'm going to give you that, I, that, that prevents me from stepping on the Holy Spirit's toes this morning is, what say you? What do you think? Here's what I think. This is the centerpiece of my faith. Not my devotion. Not my plan for social redemption. This is the centerpiece of my faith. This is what I wrote to myself. God nailed to a cross, my hammer, uh, the hammer in my hand, and me wondering what's for lunch. That's the centerpiece of my faith. God on the cross, a hammer in my hand, and so much pride and foolishness, and pettiness and selfishness that I'm wondering what's for lunch. I don't even understand what I just did. 
Maybe I'm a little put out because I got some blood on my new shirt. Okay. That's the centerpiece of my faith. While that's happening, while I'm wondering, while I'm holding a hammer, Jesus is crucified on the cross, and I'm wondering what's for lunch. Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he is saying, looking down at me, and he's saying, Father, forgive him. He doesn't know what he's doing. And here's the last piece of my, of my faith. And God answers the prayer and dumps mercy on my head for the rest of my life. Allowing for the ownership, your, your piece of ownership in the cross and putting that at the centerpiece of your faith. Seeing a crucified Savior who you put there praying for you. And seeing the God of the universe answer that prayer because he loves his son that much. And showers you with mercy so that where your sin abounds, grace abounds much more. That's way better than devotion. It's really the only hope you've got. It's way better than social harmony. Really, honestly, it's the only hope we've got. I wonder I wonder if some of us uh devotion idolaters out in the crowd today saw that little idol get kicked over and pushed aside and see Jesus again. I wonder if uh some of you realized, caught yourself in mid-bow to another round of worshiping and praying to your own devotion, your own self-discipline, your own plan. But now Jesus has taken that spot again and you see that he's your only hope. That he wants you to die to yourself, but you can't die for yourself. And that's just not going to happen. I wonder if some of our people who are hurting right now over a relationship that's broken, over someone we just wish would love, be loved. If you catch yourself this morning in mid-bow, realizing you're worshiping this outcome, and, and but Christ has been good once again this morning to kick your idol off of the, off the centerpiece of your faith and stand there, say, it's got to be me. It's got to be me and you. That's what this is. I hope that's what's happened. We'll pick this up again next week and ask in further detail how we fit into the cross. But hopefully we see this morning how we fit in to the crowd. I just want to go right into what we have before us, which is the table, the Lord prepared for us as a way of 
seeing and identifying and tasting um, what he's done for us. I just want to read 1 Corinthians 11. I want to tell you that, that this is for people who, who look down and see a hammer in their hand. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's the new plan, guys. This is the new plan. This is the one that's going to work. It's the one that is working. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me pray for us. Lord, we lift eternal uh, debt of gratitude to you who was slain for our sins. Who was slain by us. We praise your name that you have sent your word of salvation to us. Lord, let us not receive the grace of God in vain. Impress this gospel on our souls until it affects every part of us. Let it not only be something that affects our head or something that we acknowledge or or profess, but may it be felt. This gospel, may it be felt, may it diffuse to our whole being. Raise up in us, Lord, a humility and a gratitude that flows into zeal for you so that we can understand what it means to whom much is given, to whom much is forgiven, much is required. Bless this time in Jesus' name.
please stand with us. Oh, to see the dawn. Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day. Christ on the road to Calvary. Tried by sinful men, torn and beaten down, nailed to a cross of wood. Lest the power of the cross, Christ became sin for us. Yeah. 